This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and streaming free on iHeartRadio, iTunes, and audiobookradio.net. I'm Rose Fox, Senior Reviews Editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Mark Rotella. I'm a Senior Editor at Publishers Weekly, and we're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. On today's show, author Anna Bodkin discusses her new book, Fisherman's Blues, A West African Community at Sea. Then our own Mark Rotella reports on AWP, the Conference of the Association of Writers and Writing Programs. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly bestseller list, powered by NPD Bookscan. Well, there's not a lot of uh, excitement happening over in fiction. We have a number of new books on the list, but we don't have reviews for many of them. Uh, Part of that is because we've got some movie tie-ins. At number two is The Last Jedi, the expanded edition of the novelization of the film. And at number 17 is the novelization of The Shape of Water. So uh, that's not something that uh, we would generally review, but uh, certainly people are very eager to buy those books uh, based on the films. A couple of books that are worth noting at number six, The Kremlin Conspiracy by Joel C. Rosenberg. We say in our review that bestseller Rosenberg provides Tom Clancy fans with plenty of red meat in this fast-paced political thriller Uh, It's a near-future thriller uh, about an attorney who has become a trusted advisor to his father-in-law, who's the Russian president, very clearly modeled on Vladimir Putin. And uh, his rise is paralleled by that of uh, Marcus Riker, whose valor under fire as a Marine in Afghanistan led to becoming a Secret Service agent. And uh, there's contrast and conflict between the two of them and each of them turns out to have a vital part to play in shaping the end of the grandiose schemes of the Russian president. Uh, Plausibility is not at a premium, we say, but readers who like escapist suspense will be satisfied. It's a very hard sentence to say out loud. And uh, just (laughs) below that at number seven, The Escape Artist by Brad Meltzer. This is a series launch. We say it's stellar and we gave it, in fact, a star. Uh, Stars a a mortician, Jim Zig Zigarowski, um, who works the U.S. government's most top secret and high profile cases at Dover Air Force Base. What an interesting idea to, to you know, when you, yeah. when you think about these thrillers, there are dead bodies everywhere. Who handles them? This guy. We say that in this book, his world changes when a military plane mysteriously crashes in the Alaskan wilderness and uh, kills soldier Nola Brown, who as a child saved his daughter from an explosion years before. But as he prepares the body, he discovers that the scars she sustained there are missing, and he becomes suspicious that this, in fact, is not Nola at all. And so he wants to find Nola Mm. and uh, get her safe. Uh, We say with its remarkable plot and complex characters, this page-turner not only entertains, but also provides a fascinating glimpse into American history. It's the start of a series. I think that series is going to do very well. 
And uh, the only other book I wanted to mention that we have a review of is The Woman Left Behind by Linda Howard. This is on the list at number 14. We say that Howard uh, delivers an exciting standalone romantic thriller featuring nuanced characters in extraordinary circumstances who still feel relatable and warm. Uh, And in this case, uh, the heroine has a desk job in communications for a secret government agency, and she's surprised to be transferred to a black ops group that needs someone to run it its comms, its communication system. Uh, And the team leader puts her through serious training that makes her want to quit. Uh, Almost half the book covers her intense workouts and long runs while she learns to use a high-tech drone and proves herself a tough, capable member of the team while falling in love with the team leader. And we say that Howard skillfully keeps them from coming together until it feels like a well-deserved payoff, using the time to show relationships among the close-knit crew who work seamlessly together and a a subplot involving a crooked congresswoman is barely needed. So lots of exciting stuff happening in there, and that's uh, what's exciting on the hardcover fiction list. All right. Well, on nonfiction, uh, I've got three titles I want to talk about. It Number three is The Rock, The Road, and The Rabbi by uh, Kathy Lee Gifford, and with this is with Jason Sobel. Gifford, as we know, is a uh, TV host, also the author of a book called I Can't Believe I Said That. And here she discusses uh, religion with Sobel, who's a rabbi and the founder of Global Fusion, and what we call a thoughtful exploration of faith. And they start with the story of David and Goliath. And Gifford believes that religion is nothing without relationship. Uh, they, they talk about, uh, they, they, they gave, you know, they both talk about the Bible with scripture, uh, history, and uh, scriptural context. And she talks about how she has reinvigorated her faith. Uh, she began a life changing routine of praying in the early morning after hearing the call from God. Uh, we say she collects accounts of uh, Jesus' advocacy and interactions with women during a time when women were deemed the property of their fathers and husbands. We conclude spiritually invigorating and informative. This approachable book will appeal to general readers of biblical history and ancient Jewish culture. Then at number five, we have Box of Butterflies, Discovering the Unexpected Blessings All Around Us. Uh, Roma Downey is the also uh, an actress, Emmy-nominated actress from Touched by an Angel. Uh, she's also a producer of films. Uh, uh, such as a uh, little boy. Um, here we have what we call a quote-filled book on reflections in which she tells of her mother's death when she was 10 years old and how butterflies became a, a natural minder of her mother's love. Uh, we say Christian readers will appreciate Downey's, uh, Downey's resilient attitude for the trials of life as well as her deep faith in God, especially during difficult times. So we have you know, two faith-related books and one, a Faith of Another Kind, Bachelor Nation Inside the World of America's Favorite Guilty Pleasure by uh, Amy Kaufman, who's the LA Times uh, entertainment journalist. And here she's written uh, what we call an eye-opening expose of the reality TV show, The Bachelor, and explores the reasons why the show has been watched by millions since its 2002 premiere. She's had been given access. She's been covering it. uh, But then uh, for a while, because she, as much as she loved it, she came down on it critically. She was barred from the ABC press calls and interviews. Uh, but we say that she shares little-known details about the show, uh, such as hair and makeup styling are offered on the first night only. Contestants must apply their own fake eyelashes. Uh, and that 
we say this will no doubt fascinate Bachelor fans. And as it's at number 12, it seems to have. And that's what we got on the nonfiction list. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, Anna Botkin tells us about life in a West African fishing village. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Apricot Irving. I'm the author of The Gospel of Trees, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today, we've got Anna Botkin on the line. Her new book is Fisherman's Blues, A West African Community at Sea. Hello, Anna. So glad you could join us. Thank you very much for having me. So you write about life in the Senegalese village, uh, fishing village of Joao. Describe it to us. Joao is the largest artisanal fishing port in Senegal. Um, it's um, harbor. Uh, records show that about 2,100 artisanal fishing pirogues are flagged to Joal. It's a town that grew out of a village of about 5,000 people in the 60s to about uh, 46, 47,000 people now. Um, it's approximately 90 miles south of Dakar, which is the capital of Senegal, um, obviously set on the Atlantic Ocean. It's, it's, it's a four-mile-long dune spit that juts um, into the sea off uh, the Petitcourt, um and at 14th parallel north. And most uh, people who live in Joal live around for, by, and because of fishing. How did you come across this village? My work uh, revolves mostly around um, uh, looking at other or writing about other ways of looking at the world. And I wanted to write a book about boundaries um, and uh, all kinds of boundaries, physical boundaries, uh, political boundaries, uh, metaphysical boundaries. And I thought that a good way of um, talking about boundaries would be to spend time with people who traverse the utmost boundary, the boundary between the solid, the terra firma, and the unfathomable, the sea, uh, and who have been doing it generationally. So um, so I, I was looking um, at a map of, of West Africa because I've been working in West Africa for I worked um, in Mali uh, to research my previous book. And um, I learned that um, Joal is sort of the, uh, the most... Um, it epitomizes what fishing is, and it epitomizes this kind of lifestyle of um, uh, being living in an ecotone. Um, so I went to Joel. So tell us a little bit more physically about this village. Um, describe the uh, where everyone lives, the port, uh, and um, maybe anything else that you can. Joal has one paved road. Uh, it's the main road. It's also the road that if you travel north on, it will eventually end up in Dakar, which is the capital of Senegal. Um, everybody lives uh, in alleys that um, come off of the road in um, homes that are built mostly with, with brick and uh, in compounds that are fairly small um, and very heavily populated. So um, I lived in a, a retired fisherman's house 
it was a four bedroom house. We were about mm, nine people living there. Um, and, um, we lived in an alley. There were other people across the alley. It's a very communal place. Uh, and then, uh, it, every alley ends up at the sea. So it, um, kind of spurns off the, uh, spurs off the main road and then takes you to the sea where all the boats are moored or, um, simply anchored, um, just a little bit off the, off the beach. Um, uh, the harbor is a large modern building, uh, sits at the north of the town, uh, which is sort of the, 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 the part of the town that's closest to the exit from the town. And that is so that trucks that are taking fish from Joal to Dakar don't have to go through the entire village so that there's a, a closer access to the main road for big trucks that, um, take, uh, the catch of the day to Dakar where it's processed or resold. Uh, and you know, and, and it's a, it's a big, uh, bustling, um, or either a small bustling town or a big bustling village. Uh, it definitely has a very village, um, sense to it in how communal it is. Uh, everybody works around fishing. Women work either as fishwives or um, they work in a processing in fish processing, which in Joal is mostly smoking fish. There's a giant field uh, in the northern part of town where um, hundreds of women are smoking fish uh, during the seasons. Fish that will be sent out mostly inland to landlocked countries like Burkina Faso or Niger, Mali. Um, and men uh, are mostly employed in the fishing industry. And, and by men, I mean um, young people, you know, aged 12 and over. What kind of research did you do before going to Joal? How did you prepare yourself for making this visit and for writing this book? When I start thinking of an idea, I read um, a lot. So I accumulate a, a massive bookshelf of, of um, uh, very random knowledge. So I read a lot of uh, books about um, coastal West African history. I read a lot um, of books about transatlantic slave trade because uh, Senegal or that part of West Africa was um, of course, a colonial, uh, French colonial West Africa was where a lot of uh, slaves were, or people who were captured and enslaved and sent to, uh, the Americas are from. Um, I read, um, a lot of books about fishing, uh, and the environment and, and the marine environment and, um, climate change and how it affects the sea. So that's kind of the preliminary part of, um, getting off on a journey, um, and making connections, uh, preliminary connections in Senegal, uh, talking to people who are, um, involved one way or another in the fishing industry, for example, 
people who work in marine protective areas, which are trying to uh, somehow um, preempt the decimation of the sea, or uh, people who work in the government, people who work in various areas that are related to the well-being of fishing people. So, um, you know, agencies that work with uh, ch- child's health, for children's health, for example, that's, you know, also a very important part of life. So it's kind of this very broad, um, broad effort, but it really is poking in the dark because research doesn't really begin until you are in a place and um, realize that everything that you've learned is probably absolutely un- irrelevant uh and what you need to do is just go on a boat and 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 go fishing and and learn like that learn um empirically so you spend a lot of time there obviously uh living in in a fisherman's house and spending time on the boats uh introduce us to uh, some of the uh some of the crew members and some of the people you met my uh, main fishing captain's name is Ndongo Suare. He's in he's probably around 40 right now um or 39. Um he is a, a very talkative and very sophisticated man uh who has three wives and um 12 or 13 children. And, um, many of whom are boys who go fishing with him. Uh, he lives, uh, with two of his wives and his parents and his co-mother and her children. So it's a really large family compound. Um, more than 20 people live in it. Um, not very far from the, the sea. And he's been fishing since he was nine years old. Um, uh, and uh, very knowledgeable. Um, we met uh, in my first week of, of arriving uh, in Joal. Um, I was hanging out with some fishermen who tend to hang out by the sea in these seaside gazebos they call mbars, which are basically shelters uh, for fishermen to watch the sea and see who's coming back um, with a catch or without a catch so they can talk fish. Um, so I was hanging out with fishermen talking fish and, uh, this young man looked at me and, uh, looked at my hands and he said, can I, can I have one of your rings? <laughs> Which is a very, um, it's a very, um, uh, strange request because in West Africa rings are imbued with magic so he's basically asking me for you know can i have some of your power and i and i said oh well we've hardly met (laughs) i don't know who you are um uh, basically nice try and don't and um and and within a few minutes he invited me to go fishing with him uh and his kids and uh his nephew and one of his half-brothers and uh so that was the boat that i spent most of my time uh fishing on uh during the 8 months that i lived in joal um there were other boats that's a gill netter boat which means that it's um a um 
an open uh, pirogue about um, 36 feet, I think, and uh, it is made of mahogany, it has no below decks, no deck, uh, goes out about 20 miles offshore with no life preservers or a tire, a car tire as the single life preserver, uh, and drops a net uh, called a gill net in the water. A gill net is dropped in the water like a panel uh, of mesh, and uh, you're hoping that fish will, a fish school will run into it. Uh, it's called a gill net because it basically catches fish by the gills. Uh, the fish gets stuck in the net, um, and the only way to extricate the fish from the net is to basically tear it out, uh, which means pretty much every fish that got stuck in the net will die, or anything that got stuck in the net will die. Um, a lot of bycatch happens, so a lot of um, marine life that is not you didn't intend to catch is going to be caught. Uh, so it's a very violent um, way of fishing, and it's illegal in many places because of how much damage it um, creates. But, um, you know, I also heard a fisherman say that gillnet is the only way to fish in Senegal anymore because the sea has been so dramatically depleted over the last couple of decades um, that the only way to fish is to go in with this very rude implement um, and try to catch whatever you can. We're going to take a quick break, but don't go away. Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors. And conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio. Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com. Welcome back. We're talking with Anna Bodkan, author of Fisherman's Blues, A West African Community at Sea. So is that part of the pun in the title, I suppose? Not that they're just going out to sea, but also... Uh, it sounds like they're a little bit metaphorically at sea in a in a changing world, in a world where other people have invaded their waters and taken their fish. Very much so. We live in a world where the artisanal fishing life of about 12 million people um, is being drowned out by a mechanized industry that employs half a million people worldwide. Um, trawlers um, that often fish illegally, stealing fish from waters of countries that are unable to or don't have the willpower, the political willpower to um, patrol their territorial waters. We also live in a world that is dramatically being changed dramatically by climate change. So the salinity of the sea is changing, which means what lives in the sea is changing. So uh, fish that used to run off the coast of Senegal now runs off the coast of Mauritania much farther north because the temperature of the sea is changing, etc., etc. So there's this dramatic changes happening both to the amount of fish in the sea and also how that fish behaves and that's another boundary that is 
constantly shifting to which my crewmates and my captains have to adjust um, daily and have been having to adjust for the last uh, 20, 30 years. Pretty much um, since uh, the West discovered that fish is good for you and, um, and, 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 you know, and basically what's happening in Senegal with the fishing industry is what's happening in a lot of the world, especially the global South is, um, the avarice of the global North dictates livelihoods for entire populations, you know, millions of people, billions of people. Um, and the, segregation of our world is such that we in the global north often don't recognize or choose not to recognize um, our impact on the lives of people we choose not to see. So one of the purposes of this book is to, um, to, to, to invite my audiences in the global north to um, take responsibility or at least imagine how our behaviors and our eating patterns um, um, affect my friends in Senegal. Uh, tell us a little bit about what they're fishing, what they're catching, and the process of once they haul it in to what happens to the fish from there. Well, you catch anything that comes into your net, basically. You know, 20, 30 years, 40 years ago, fishermen were cat were extremely picky about their catch. Um, there were fish or sea creatures that they wouldn't catch at all. For example, cuttlefish was considered extremely dirty, so dirty, so that, so dirty that um, parents would not allow their children to eat from a communal plate if they'd touched cuttlefish that day. Now, cuttlefish is uh, one of the most lucrative catches because um, the Senegalese don't eat it, but it all goes for export. And so, as a result, it pays better in the harbor than the sardine, which is the predominant catch uh, in Senegal. So, now, fishermen often will choose to catch cuttlefish or trap cuttlefish because it's just more money. Um I've not seen a lot of big fish. You know, I haven't seen a lot of tuna. I haven't seen, I know that sawfish is almost completely gone from the, from the waters off the coast of Senegal. Tuna is very rare. So it's mostly sardine um, or sardinella as they call it. And um, fishermen bring it directly to harbor at the end of the day or at the end of the trip, which can be, Usually a day, but often, you know, a few days or a couple of weeks. Um, they come to harbor, and at the harbor, they're met uh, by this pandemonium of, of fishwives and um, who, who, and middlemen who come out to the boats or send people out to the boats um, to bargain for the fish. So there's this really beautiful and intricate ballet of bargaining that happens between fishermen who are dead tired on their boats and women who are wading into this um, shoreside slop, uh, you know, up to their armpits uh, in water that is 
running with fish scale and with fish blood and with engine oil. Uh, and, and there's this dance about, um, you know, sell me your fish, calling captains their brothers, their lovers, their best friends. And the captains have to decide um, how much money they can get for their catch of the day. And then that money is divided equally equally among every member of the crew. So it doesn't matter if you're nine years old or if you're a 35-year-old sea captain or a fishing captain. Each of you is going to get the same amount of money from the catch you caught. So it's extremely an extremely democratic way of um, um, compensation. What role do the fishwives play in the daily catch? You talked about them in their uh, up to their armpits slushing, uh, but the, you have this image of them running out to the ships to 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 help haul in. They come out to the boats um, once the boats arrive at the harbor. Um, the boats basically come right into the sand of the harbor and ramming their bows into the sand. And the fishwives wade out to the boats and um, start giving their price to the captains and the captains have to listen to all of these women um, decide which one would give them a better price and then sell the fish without the fishwives that'd be no industry because somebody had because you know somebody has to buy the fish from from the fishermen and then the fishermen will sell this fish to the fishwives and the fishwives will then take it to shore and i mean literally we're talking p- 10 paces from the boat. Once they step on sand, there will be probably a short row of women who run local restaurants. And these women will buy this fish at a slight markup because they didn't have to wade into the water. And if the fishwives don't sell it to the uh, women who run restaurants, they will keep going away from the water and another 10 or 15 paces in, they will talk to the middlemen who don't even want to come close to the water. And these middlemen will pay another higher markup for the for the fish. And then there is another layer of customers on the other side of the harbor, people who don't want to dirty their shoes in the fish blood that mm-hmm. runs all around the harbor. And there you can sell that fish for, you know, at a markup of, you know, a hundred percent. And then you can also take that fish to Dakar, which is the big city, which is the capital. And there you can mark it up, you know, three times, four times. What surprised you most during your time in Joao? Like, what did you go expecting and what did you find that wasn't what you expected? I think the trick um, of a writer is to not have expectations. I think, I think if we go into a place, um, go into a situation um, expecting something, we're bound to miss something because once we have, once we set expectations, um, we're going to try to accommodate our experience to match somehow that expectation. Um, so over, I've been writing uh, stories for 22 years and over this time I have learned, um, not to expect anything at all and to keep my eyes and my heart very open to what I encounter. And in that 
worldview, you know, everything is a surprise and nothing is a surprise. Um, I think our capacity to wonder is immense and has to be cultivated, which is how we um, can be human with one another, right? Which is how we can be compassionate to one another through lack of expectation. Um, so, you know, one thing I learned in the course of my work um, is to just be prepared to be astonished. I think that was, I think it was the last poem that Galway Canal wrote that was called Astonishment and it ended with the words, our task is to astonish and harder by far to be astonished. So being astonished is, is key in telling stories. Your previous book was Walking with Abel about nomads of the African savanna. Uh, tell us about them and perhaps the relationship to, to this book, at least in your interest. I went to Mali to work with um, nomadic Fulani cowboys. I herded cattle with nomadic Fulani cowboys on and off for a year because I was curious, again, um, I was curious about how we think, how we see the world. So um, humans evolved to move at a pace of three miles an hour through open spaces. This is how we evolved um, a hundred thousand years ago. Um, and I found a family of people who have always been walking. So about 10,000 years ago, um, Neolithic revolution happened and some of us stopped moving and settled and settled into agrarian communities but some of us continued to move the nomads people who herded animals because you need to move you need to be chasing cloud you need to be constantly chasing water and pasturage in order to survive as a um, as a pastoralist and uh, my hosts in mali uh, my friends who were fulani cattle herders their ancestors had never stopped walking. And so I wanted to see what it was like to perceive, how do you perceive the world at the pace of three miles an hour when you're constantly leaving, but also constantly arriving? Uh, and while I was working with the Fulani, um, there was a river always, of course, because you have to water your cattle somehow. So there was always a river in the vicinity. And on that river, I saw fisher people uh, in beautiful pirogues. And I thought, oh my God, what would, what would it be like to be, you know, poling across um, these ecotones on one of those beautiful wooden pirogues? So there's actually a direct um, relation between my, um, my previous book and, and this book. Um, one was kind of born out of the other. And what's next for you? Are you going to go back to West Africa? Are you thinking about making a change? I'm working, um, astonishingly for me, on my first novel, which is set in the United States. Uh, it's set on the border, which is a safe space for me, um, of the U.S. and Mexico, uh, West Texas and Mexico. Um, 
so it's fiction um, about about homelessness and about identity, um, about genocide, about how we relate to one another. So it's in a way not that different from my work, my nonfiction work, but also very different because um, it all has to come from my head somehow. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it sounds like an exciting adventure. Thank you. We've been talking with Anna Bodkin. You can find her book, Fisherman's Blues, A West African Community at Sea, in stores right now. Anna, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, our very own Mark Rotella talks about AWP. Stay tuned. Hi, my name is Morgan Jerkins, and I am the author of This Will Be My Undoing, Living at the Intersection of Black, Female, Feminist, and White America, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week we get insider info from Publishers Weekly editors and contributors, and today that contributor is PW Senior Editor Mark Rotella, who's going to tell us all about his adventures at AWP. Hi, Mark. Hello. So it was a fun time. So give us the give us the background. What is AWP and uh, what what drew you there? So the AWP is the Association of Writers and Writing Programs, and it is basically uh, a lot of writers go down, professors who teach uh, English creative writing, either undergraduate or in MFA programs. You get a lot of independent publishers, you get a lot of literary magazines, uh, and then uh, some publishers, major publishers who are doing a lot more literary uh, publications. So you'll have Norton there, you'll have um, a booth for uh, Riverhead, and um, it's, it's really a great gathering of people where there's a lot of talk about literature and the craft of literature and getting your literature published. Lots of poets there. And was there anything in particular on the program that caught your attention this year? There was. George Saunders gave the keynote address. So George Saunders received the uh, Man Booker Prize for his novel, Lincoln and the Bardo, last year, 2017. Um, it was, uh, you know, it was really great. He gave the keynote on uh, uh, Thursday night, and he talked about the craft of writing. He talked about the um, the need for compassion within fiction and creating characters, um, and, and by that meaning, not taking them more at face, you know, taking them beyond face value. Um, and then he moved on to talk about, uh, he, he then asked the audience, do we need to apply the same compassion that we do to, to creating fictional characters uh, to our political enemies? And he said, unfortunately, yes. And he talked about being on the, uh, covering the Trump rallies uh, for the New Yorker and uh, talking about how 
neither side had a similar points of reference or any points of similar references. Uh, he would drop, he said that like anyone else, he, uh, uh, he, he might, when he's feeling a little insecure, I mean, here's someone who's won the man Booker prize, the MacArthur genius award. He's a great speaker. He, he said that whenever he gets a little insecure, someone asks him what he does. He said, Oh, I, I write for the New Yorker. And usually when he's among like-minded people or other readers, they, they'll, they'll be impressed and go ooh and ah, and here there was nothing, a great silence. But from then, he started to talk to people and people talking to him. And he, he came away saying he's a great uh, – he, he's very good at the art of persuasion, and there was no way he could persuade anyone here. But they did have conversations, and, and when he talked about compassion, uh, both in literature and, and meeting people in politics, he, he made the argument – he goes, I don't mean to be gentle. If, you know, if someone is doing something uh, unethical – you call them on it, um, and and you make amends to move. But it was it was really brilliant how he was able to to move from literature to politics, uh, back to literature in in one speech. And it was about eighteen hundred people there um, at the uh, keynote address, uh, standing room only. Um, it's great. This conference uh, drew about 10,000 people this time. And usually last year was about 12,000. But we had these storms in the Northeast where many flights were canceled and therefore uh, quite a few people couldn't get down. Uh, it was in Tampa Bay, uh, which is where I grew up, uh, is in the city of Tampa, right on the uh, Hillsborough River, which uh, right at the mouth of the Hillsborough River as it goes into Hillsborough Bay and then Tampa Bay. It's uh, completely built up from what I remember. Uh, we had a downtown in Tampa, but it wasn't as populated and as much of a draw as this. It's uh, right next to the uh, the um, arena where the uh, Tampa Bay Lightning professional hockey team plays, which has now surpassed even the Tampa Bay Buccaneers football team in popularity. So you have a great concentration of people there, um, but then they leave after the events. There's not a much. There's not much of a of a of a uh, there in 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 downtown Tampa. Yet at the hotels where everyone was congregating, you, you're right along the river. You're talking with, you know, uh, uh, sitting alongside you know, palm trees and rattan chairs. And uh, they, they said that even many of the people I talked to that said that even with the, um, uh, the slightly less foot traffic, they there was time for more intimate and I think really good talks about literature and everyone there seemed to have just a blast. Uh, there were great parties, one thrown by in tandem uh, Grey Wolf Press and Riverhead uh, and it was at a uh, place just outside of downtown Tampa uh, in a bookstore, a great bookstore with uh, Warby Parker <laughs> glasses for all those who uh, read and need glasses. There's an eyeglass store there and uh, uh, and then a restaurant uh, and uh, it was just a really good gathering of people. I, I want to say the themes for the conference, in addition to compassion that George Saunders talked about was was also uh, identity. Um, and it was identity, uh, uh, gender identity. There was um, uh, a group of writers talking about what it's like to be uh, women writers and you know, progressive women writers in 
the the most one of the most reactionary states of the union that is Florida. Um, there is also a talk about writing lives with writing spouses when both uh, spouses uh, or partners wrote. How do you find the balance? And uh, and it was it was I, I thought a really nice panel uh, addressing things like that. And how does one retain uh, identity within the relationship, but also as a writing professional? Um, so going out to some more of the speakers, uh, there was a panel. And by the way, that panel was called the Ecstasy and the Laundry, um, <laughs> which, which was which was. <laughs> Which was pretty funny. You got the ecstasy of writing and then the doldrums of doing laundry for your kids. Uh, you know, I, I uh, will say that my own particular writing process actually really requires doing laundry, which I found out when my washing machine broke. And for a week, I couldn't write anything because it turned out that what I really needed was a reason to get up and move around every half hour. And if I didn't have that to get up and change the laundry or fold the laundry or whatever it was, then I didn't know how to have a rhythm of writing and pausing. Pausing and writing and pausing. So everybody's a little different. Oh, that's great. Oh, that's great. <laughs> you have to find your own ways to make these things work when you're uh, when you're doing oh, right. some some of everything. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Um, Grey Wolf Press uh, publisher Fiona McRae uh, moderated a panel with Maud Casey, uh, Christopher Castellani, and Edwidge Danticat, um, and it was on uh, books that each had written for Grey Wolf on various forms of criticism, and uh, it was it was interesting. I really liked to hear uh, Edwidge Danticat said uh, it was for the art of series, so the art of I guess art of criticism. Each had a, a topic such as death or something, um, and. Uh, Edward said, I'd love to read beautiful criticism, and it is an art in itself, but in a space I feel like a visitor. Uh, she said, I approach it more like a conversation between passionate readers, which, you know, as those of us like you and I who work, uh, you know, who handle reviews and criticism, I, I, I'd like to hear, it was a nice discussion about it and how people use criticism to, to engage in conversation. Uh, another panel, which was moderated by Colette Bancroft, who's the book editor of the Tampa Bay Times. Uh, she's been there for a while. She's written wonderful articles on, uh, on you know, many of the great literary figures. Uh, and, uh, and she held a discussion between Nathan Englander and Lauren Groff on uh, the importance of um, you know, many other things. It was important that many of these panels were on the art of writing. And... Uh, uh, this one, they, they talked about getting feedback, and each of them said they, they liked to get it early on after they'd completed uh, a, a phase. And uh, Nathan Englander said, I realized that, you know, it took me a while to realize that the book is a living thing, meaning it's not just coming out of uh, one's head, but it is something that you, you give to a friend to read or another or, or a, a spouse or partner. Um, and then to your agent, and then to an editor. So, so it's almost as if everyone's there's an you know thumbprint on it from everyone. So it becomes this living thing. And of course, once it goes out in the world, um, it's its own animal. And uh, 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 Lauren Groff said, uh, you know, she 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 thinks everyone should be terrified to put something out in the world. Kate Tuttle moderated a uh, discussion. Kate Tuttle's the uh, president of the NBCC uh, National Book Critics Circle, which uh, we are having our awards tonight. Um, 
I'm one of the board members, one of the voting board members. It's a very exciting night. Uh, and uh, this is going to be, we're going to have a talk with, they had a talk with, uh, I'm sure she had a talk with Jeffrey Eugenides, Lori Moore, and Dana Spiota. And the conversation ranged from ideas, uh, you know, where to get uh, ideas and inspiration. The novelist Lori Moore said she collects juicy stories uh, from people she's talking with. And uh, then they talk, started talking about failures, like what, what, what when do you know you've you've started on the wrong foot or something is a failure and uh, novelist Dana Spiota said it all feels like one long failure to me uh, which everyone in the entire room just laughed so mm. <laughs> kind of an, a sigh of relief yeah I'm sure a lot of writers know that feeling even if it's not true it can feel that way right exactly well, that sounds like uh, an amazing adventure and uh, and also a very nice break from the late winter weather that we've been getting here. Did you enjoy your palm trees? Oh, it was great. It was really nice. And it's kind of interesting for me, you know, where I grew up and this is where I, I was first, the, the setting in which I was first introduced to literature. Uh, uh, but it was also uh, the place that I needed to leave in order to appreciate it more. So, but it was, it was kind of fun to see. It was almost, it was great to see all these, you know, colleagues, fellow writers and editors and, and teachers kind of gathering in my backyard. Uh, it was, uh, it was fun. Well, thank you so much, Mark. I very much appreciate you uh, taking the time to come on the show. <laughs> uh, but <laughs> no, thank you, thank you very much for the report, and uh, we look forward to next year's. And also, uh, I'm excited about those NBCC awards. I think by the time people are listening to this podcast, it'll have been announced. But in the meantime, we get to hover here in anticipation. Well, and uh, maybe we'll talk about them next week. That's entirely possible. Well, it, thank you. Thank you so you'll much. You'll invite me back on the show. Oh, well, I think I will. You're a pretty good guest. <laughs> <laughs> and now a final word from our sponsors. Beyond the headlines, beyond the routine, beyond the book. I'm Chris Keneally, host of Copyright Clearance and his podcast series, Beyond the Book. And I'm Andrew Albany, senior writer at Publishers Weekly. Join us each Friday for a Publishing News Week in Review podcast unlike any other. Learn all the breaking news and catch the best analysis on developments in the book trade, copyright law, and much more. You already know business as usual. Now go Beyond the Book. Listen to the free series and subscribe at beyondthebook.com. And that's it for today's show. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox. And you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Join us next week for another wide-ranging author interview. We'll also have lots more juicy insider info on best-selling books and the nuts and bolts of publishing. In the meantime, you can listen to this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio absolutely free at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio. Subscribe to our podcasts on iHeartRadio and iTunes and hear every new episode streamed live on audiobookradio.net. Check those sites every week for a brand new episode giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 